Section 40 of The Genius by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 11, Part 2. Eugene, returning and feeling as usual, depressed about his state, sought to find consolation in her company. He came in at one o'clock, their usual lunch hour, and finding Angela still working, said, George, but you like to keep at things when you get started, don't you? You're a regular little workhorse. Having much trouble? No, replied Angela dubiously. Eugene noted the tone of her voice. He thought she was not very strong, and this packing was getting on her nerves. Fortunately, there were only some trunks to look after, for the vast mass of their housekeeping materials belonged to the studio. Still, no doubt she was weary. Are you very tired? he asked. No, she replied. You look it, he said, slipping his arm about her. Her face, which he turned up with his hand, was pale and drawn. It isn't anything physical, she replied, looking away from him in a tragic way. It's just my heart. It's here. And she laid her hand over her heart. What's the matter now? he asked, suspecting something emotional, though for the life of him, he could not imagine what. Does your heart hurt you? It isn't my real heart, she returned. It's just my mind, my feelings, though I don't suppose they ought to matter. What's the matter now, angel face, he persisted, for he was sorry for her. This emotional ability of hers had the power to move him. It might have been acting, or it might not have been. It might be either a real or a fancied woe. In either case, it was real to her. What's come up, he continued. Aren't you just tired? Suppose we quit this and go out somewhere and get something to eat. You'll feel better. No, I couldn't eat, she replied. I'll stop now and get your lunch. But I don't want anything. Oh, what's the matter, Angela, he begged. I know there's something. Now what is it? You're tired? Or you're sick? Or something has happened? Is it anything that I've done? Look at me, is it? Angela held away from him, looking down. She did not know how to begin this, but she wanted to make him terribly sorry if she could, as sorry as she was for herself. She thought he ought to be, that if he had any true feelings of shame and sympathy in him, he would be. Her own condition in the face of his shameless past was terrible. She had no one to love her. She had no one to turn to. Her own family did not understand her life any more. It had changed so. She was a different woman now greater, more important, more distinguished. Her experiences with Eugene here, in New York, in Paris, in London, and even before her marriage, in Chicago and Blackwood, had changed her point of view. She was no longer the same in her ideas, she thought, and to find herself deserted in this way emotionally, not really loved, not ever having been really loved, but just toyed with, made a doll and a plaything, was terrible. Oh, dear, she exclaimed in a shrill staccato. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to think. If I only knew how to think or what to do. What's the matter, begged Eugene, releasing his hold and turning his thoughts partially to himself and to his own condition as well as to hers. His nerves were put on edge by these emotional tantrums. His brain fairly ached. 
It made his hands tremble. In his days of physical and nervous soundness, it did not matter. But now, when he was sick, when his own heart was weak, as he fancied, and his nerves set to jangling by the least discord, it was almost more than he could bear. Why don't you speak, he insisted. You know I can't stand this. I'm in no condition. What's the trouble? What's the use of carrying on this way? Are you going to tell me? There, Angela said, pointing her finger at the box of letters she had laid aside on the window sill. She knew he would see them, would remember instantly what they were about. Eugene looked. The box came into his memory instantly. He picked it up nervously, sheepishly, for this was like a blow in the face which he had no power to resist. The whole peculiar nature of his transactions with Ruby and with Christina came back to him, not as they looked to him at the time, but as they were appearing to Angela now. What must she think of him? Here he was protesting right along that he loved her, that he was happy and satisfied to live with her, that he was not interested in any of these other women whom she knew to be interested in him and of whom she was inordinately jealous, that he had always loved her and her only. And yet, here were these letters suddenly come to light, giving mind all the protestations and asseverations, making him look like a coward, the blackguard, the moral thief that he knew himself to be. To be dragged out of the friendly darkness, of lack of knowledge and understanding on her part, and set forth under the clear white light of positive proof. He stared helplessly, his nerves trembling, his brain aching, for truly he was in no condition for an emotional argument. And yet Angela was crying now. She had walked away from him and was leaning against the mantelpiece, sobbing as if her heart would break. There was a real convincing ache in the sound, the vibration expressing the sense of loss and defeat and despair which she felt. He was staring at the box, wondering why he had been such an idiot as to leave them in his trunk, to have saved them at all. "'Well, I don't know that there is anything to say to that,' he observed finally, strolling over to where she was. There wasn't anything he could say that he knew. He was terribly sorry, sorry for her, sorry for himself. "'Did you read them all?' he asked curiously. She nodded her head in the affirmative. "'Well, I didn't care so much for Christina Channing,' he observed, deprecatingly. He wanted to say something, anything, which would relieve her depressed mood. He knew it couldn't be much. If he could only make her believe that there wasn't anything vital in either of these affairs, that his interests and protestations had been of a light, philandering character. Still the Ruby Kenny letter showed that she cared for him desperately. He could not say anything against Ruby. Angela caught the name of Christina Channing clearly. It seared itself into her brain. She recalled now that it was she of whom she had heard him speak in a complimentary way from time to time. He had told in studios of what a lovely voice she had, what a charming platform presence she had, how she could sing so feelingly, how intelligently she looked upon life, how good-looking she was, how she was coming back to Grand Opera some day. And he had been in the mountains with her, had made love to her, while she, Angela, was out in Blackwood waiting for him patiently. It aroused on the instant 
all the fighting jealousy that was in her breast. It was the same jealousy that had determined her once before to hold him in spite of the plotting and scheming that appeared to her to be going on about her. They should not have him, these nasty studio superiorities, not any one of them, nor all of them combined, if they were to unite and try to get him. They had treated her shamefully since she had been in the East. They had almost uniformly ignored her. They would come to see Eugene, of course, and now that he was famous, they could not be too nice to him. But as for her, well, they had no particular use for her. Hadn't she seen it? Hadn't she watched the critical, hypocritical, examining expression in their eyes? She wasn't smart enough. She wasn't literary enough or artistic enough. She knew as much about life as they did and more, ten times as much, and yet because she couldn't strut and pose and stare and talk in an affected voice, they thought themselves superior. And so did Eugene, the wretched creature superior, the cheap, mean, nasty, selfish upstarts. Why, the majority of them had nothing. Their clothes were mere rags and tags. When you came to examine them closely, badly sewed, of poor material, merely slung together, and yet they wore them with such a grand air. She would show them. She would dress herself, too, one of these days, when Eugene had the means. She was doing it now a great deal more than when she first came, and she would do it a great deal more before long. The nasty, mean, cheap, selfish, make-believe things she would show them. Oh, how she hated them! Now as she cried, she also thought of the fact that Eugene could write love-letters to this horrible Christina Channing. One of the same kind, no doubt, her letters showed it. Oh, how she hated her! If she could only get at her to poison her! And her sobs sounded much more of the sorrow she felt than of the rage. She was helpless in a way, and she knew it. She did not dare to show him exactly what she felt. She was afraid of him. He might possibly leave her. He really did not care for her enough to stand everything from her, or did he? This doubt was the one terrible, discouraging, annihilating feature of the whole thing. If he only cared. I wish you wouldn't cry, Angela, said Eugene appealingly after a time. It isn't as bad as you think. It looks pretty bad. But I wasn't married then, and I didn't care so very much for these people. Not as much as you think. Really, I didn't. It may look that way to you, but I didn't. Didn't care, sneered Angela, all at once, flaring up. Didn't care. It looks as though you didn't care, with one of them calling you honey boy and Adonis, and the other saying she wishes she were dead. A fine time you'd have convincing anyone that you didn't care. And I out in Blackwood at the very time, longing and waiting for you to come, and you up in the mountains making love to another woman. Oh, I know how much you cared. You showed how much you cared when you could leave me out there to wait for you, eating my heart out while you were off in the mountains having a good time with another woman. Dear E, and precious honey boy and Adonis, that shows how much you cared, doesn't it? Eugene stared before him helplessly. Her bitterness and wrath surprised and irritated him. He did not know that she was capable of such an awful rage has showed itself in her face and words at this moment. And yet, he did not know 
but that she was well justified. Why so bitter, though, so almost brutal? He was sick. Had she no consideration for him? I tell you, it wasn't as bad as you think, he said stolidly, showing for the first time a trace of temper and opposition. I wasn't married then. I did like Christina Channing. I did like Ruby Kenny. What of it? I can't help it now. What am I going to say about it? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? Oh, whimpered Angela, changing her tone at once from helpless accusing rage to pleading, self-commiserating misery. And you can stand there and say to me, what of it? What of it? What of it? What shall you say? What do you think you ought to say? And me believing that you were so honorable and faithful. Oh, if I had only known, if I had only known, I'd had better have drowned myself a hundred times over than have waked and found that I wasn't loved. Oh, dear, oh, dear, I don't know what I ought to do. I don't know what I can do. But I do love you, protested Eugene, soothingly, anxious to say or do anything which would quiet this terrific storm. He could not imagine how he could have been so foolish as to leave these letters lying around. Dear heaven, what a mess he had made of this, if only he had put them safely outside the home or destroyed them. Still, he had wanted to keep Christina's letters. They were so charming. Yes, you love me, flared Angela. I see how you love me. Those letters show it. Oh, dear, oh, dear, I wish I were dead. Listen to me, Angela, replied Eugene desperately. I know this correspondence looks bad. I did make love to Miss Kenny and to Christina Channing, but you see I didn't care enough to marry either of them. If I had, I would have. I cared for you. Believe it or not, I married you. Why did I marry you? Answer me that. I needn't have married you. Why did I? Because I loved you, of course. What other reason could I have? Because you couldn't get Christina Channing, snapped Angela angrily, with the intuitive sense of one who reasons from one material fact to another. That's why. If you could have, you would have. I know it. Her letters show it. Her letters don't show anything of the sort, returned Eugene angrily. I couldn't get her. I could have had her easily enough. I didn't want her. If I had wanted her, I would have married her. You can bet on that. He hated himself for lying in this way, but he felt for the time being that he had to do it. He did not care to stand in the role of a jilted lover. He half fancied that he could have married Christina if he had really tried. Anyhow, he said, I'm not going to argue that point with you. I didn't marry her, so there you are. And I didn't marry Ruby Kenny either. Well, you can think all you want, but I know. I cared for them, but I didn't marry them. I married you instead. I ought to get credit for something on that score. I married you because I loved you, I suppose. That's perfectly plain, isn't it? He was half convincing himself that he had loved her in some degree. Yes, I see how you loved me, persisted Angela, cogitating this very peculiar fact which he was insisting on and which it was very hard intellectually to overcome. You married me because you couldn't very well get out of it, that's why. Oh, I know. You didn't want to marry me. That's very plain. You wanted to marry someone else. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Oh, how you talk, Eugene replied defiantly. Marry someone else? 
Who did I want to marry? I could have married often enough if I had wanted to. I didn't want to marry, that's all. Believe it or not, I wanted to marry you, and I did. I don't think you have any right to stand there and argue so. What you say isn't so, and you know it. Angela cogitated this argument further. He had married her. Why had he? He might have cared for Christina and Ruby, but he must have cared for her, too. Why hadn't she thought of that? There was something in it, something besides a mere desire to deceive her. Perhaps he did care for her a little. Anyway, it was plain that she could not get very far by arguing with him. He was getting stubborn, argumentative, contentious. She had not seen him that way before. Oh, she sobbed, taking refuge from this very difficult realm of logic in the safer and more comfortable one of illogical tears. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. She was badly treated, no doubt of that. Her life was a failure. But even so, there was some charm about him. As he stood there, looking aimlessly around, defiant at one moment, appealing at another, she could not help seeing that he was not wholly bad. He was just weak on this one point. He loved pretty women. They were always trying to win him to them. He was probably not wholly to blame. If he would only be repentant enough, this thing might be allowed to blow over. It couldn't be forgiven. She never could forgive him for the way he had deceived her. Her ideal of him had been pretty hopelessly shattered. But she might live with him on probation. Angela, he said, while she was still sobbing and feeling that he ought to apologize to her, won't you believe me? Won't you forgive me? I don't like to hear you cry this way. There's no use saying that I didn't do anything. There's no use my saying anything at all, really. You won't believe me. I don't want you to, but I'm sorry. Won't you believe that? Won't you forgive me? Angela listened to this curiously, her thoughts going around in a ring, for she was at once despairing, regretful, revengeful, critical, sympathetic toward him, desirous of retaining her state, desirous of obtaining and retaining his love, desirous of punishing him, desirous of doing any one of a hundred things. Oh, if he had only never done this! And he was sickly, too. He needed her sympathy. "'Won't you forgive me, Angela?' he pleaded softly, laying his hand on her arm. "'I'm not going to do anything like that any more. Won't you believe me? Come on now, quit crying, won't you?' Angela hesitated for a while, lingering dolefully. She did not know what to do, what to say. It might be that he would not sin against her any more. He had not thus far, insofar as she knew. Still this was a terrible revelation. All at once, because he maneuvered himself into a suitable position, and because she herself was weary of fighting and crying, and because she was longing for sympathy, she allowed herself to be pulled into his arms, her head to his shoulder, and there she cried more copulously than ever. Eugene, for the moment, felt terribly grieved. He was really sorry for her. It wasn't right. He ought to be ashamed of himself. He should never have done anything like that. I'm sorry, he whispered. Really, I am. Won't you forgive me? Oh, I don't know what to do, what to think, moaned Angela, after a time. Please do, Angela, he urged, holding her questioningly. 
There was more of this pleading and emotional badgering until finally out of sheer exhaustion Angela said yes. Eugene's nerves were worn to a thread by the encounter. He was pale, exhausted, distraught. Many scenes like this, he thought, would set him crazy. And still he had to go through a world of petting and love-making even now. It was not easy to bring her back to her normal self. It was bad business, this philandering, he thought. It seemed to lead to all sorts of misery for him, and Angela was jealous. Dear heaven, what a wrathful, vicious, contentious nature she had when she was aroused. He had never suspected that. How could he truly love her when she acted like that? How could he sympathize with her? He recalled how she had sneered at him, how she taunted him with Christina's having discarded him. He was weary, excited, desirous of rest and sleep, but now he must make more love. He fondled her, and by degrees she came out of her blackest mood. But he was not really forgiven even then. He was only just understood better, and she was not truly happy again, but only hopeful and watchful. End of section 40